Bringing you around the world right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today's show is going to be Soup for Your Soul, to borrow a title. (laughs) Um, You know that uh, I usually berate you every week to um, go out there and do something, from impeaching the president because of the ports deal to um, clamoring for better movies um, to whatever is, is going on at the moment to get out there and make your voice heard. And um, I like to have, from time to time, uh, guests who actually embody the kind of thing that I it would be my dream for everyone to do, and that is to be able to overcome um, your own problems to the extent that you can look beyond yourself and look at the world and what you can do to make the world a better place. And that isn't necessarily impeaching the president if that's not what you believe, but there are certainly plenty of other things that you could be doing from helping at soup kitchens to, um, I have soup on the mind, (laughs) I guess I'm hungry, (laughs) from working in soup kitchens to doing whatever it is that you believe in and, and particularly to fixing the injustices in the world. But to do that, I know that a lot of you think, oh, yeah, right, well, if I didn't have to take care of my kids or if I didn't have to work two jobs or, you know, do lots of other things that take up my time, I'd love to do these things, but how am I supposed to fit that into my life? Well, today's guest um, is just one of those people who actually, to some degree, he was forced to, um, uh, to well, to make a choice uh, as to whether he would become a victim of his circumstances or whether he would go beyond that. And actually, um, he went way beyond that. My guest is Jay Platt. He is the author of A Time to Walk, and he's a former Marine Corps drill instructor. And um, when he was struck with a life-threatening illness, he had to drill himself into overcoming it and going beyond that, but now uh, to trying to inspire other people to overcome what life has dealt them as well. So welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks, Dr. Carroll. I'm really, really glad to be here. Well, why don't you start out by um, telling us what it's like for a macho <laughs> Marine Corps drill instructor um, to all of a sudden find out that he has a life-threatening illness. Yeah, you want to talk about something that will really test your courage and how tough you really are because if you would have known me when I was a Marine, I was a, a Marine's Marine, a uh, big, tough guy, and you know nothing bothered me and nothing could get to me, and I wasn't afraid of anything, you know, supposedly. And I actually I woke up one morning um, way back in 1986, could not see out of my left eye, and that was the beginnings of this condition that I have called von Hippel-Lindau. And although on the outside I tried to frug it off like it wasn't any big deal, 
inside I was terrified. And so really and truly for the first time in my life, I you know, was really, really scared. And I realized that I was now fighting something that uh, didn't have a whole lot of control over. And um, it really made me follow the principles that I talk about today, to not just talk about them, but to really, truly walk them. And the principles that we're going to discuss here today that I have used to be able to overcome this condition and other things is something that everyone can can have and everyone can do. Now, um, tell us about, you know, the diagnosis and, and what this illness is um, and also, I'm, I've been doing some reading about it. I mean, it's something that we, it's a very rare condition. So yes, I vaguely remember studying this in medical school, but, uh, since there really aren't many, relatively many patients who have it, um, you know, it, it really is not something that we spend a whole lot of time on in medical school. Yeah, it is one of the, it's a rare condition. Um, Although the now, nowadays they're actually finding that more people have it than what they initially mm. thought. When I was diagnosed with it in 1986, um, you know, for years and years and years, I was the only one, as far as I was concerned, in the world who had this. I knew mm. of no one else who had it. It's called von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, um, and it's considered to, a, to be a genetic familial uh, cancer syndrome. Uh, meaning that it causes tumors in different parts of the body. Sometimes they're benign, but sometimes they're malignant, particularly they're malignant in, when they get into the kidneys and the adrenal glands. Uh, it started out in my left eye, um, as I said, in 86. I had several surgeries for it, and um, ended up where they could not really save the eye, and they were just going blind in that eye. And then in 1995, I had to have that eye removed, and the condition continued to grow and moved into my brain, well, I've got four tumors in my, my brain, on my cerebellum, um, were not malignant, but they were taking up room. <laughs> you know, there's not a whole lot of extra room in your mm-hmm. in your brain. And uh, so I had to have surgery for that. And they also moved into my kidney and were malignant in both kidneys. Um, and so this is a multifaceted uh, condition. As I said, sometimes it can be benign, sometimes malignant. But the thing is, it's uncontrollable tumor growth. It, uh, they don't, still don't know exactly what makes the condition uh, grow in some people and not grow in others. Now, did anyone, since the majority of people who have it, um, it comes from, as you said, it's genetic. Did, did anyone in your family, did your parents or anyone else have it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, in, in 1993, the National Institutes of Health um, was able to actually identify the gene. And so then they were able to start doing genetic testing. Um, and I had the genetic test, and they identified it in me, and then also tested my uh, immediate family members, my parents. I have both parents are living, and I have a brother and two sisters. All of them also had a genetic test, and they also were looked at by uh, doctors up at uh, NIH. And it was determined that I am, in fact, a, a de novo, a, a a new case mm-hmm. um, for any genetic condition, it has to start with someone, and they estimate that anywhere from three to five percent of VHL patients actually are de novos or, or new cases. So something happened to me um, that caused the condition to grow in me. You know, obviously it happened when I was a fetus or just a, you know a cell was the initial hit on, on my genes. It's the two-hit model condition. Uh, the initial hit was when, when I was just a, a cell, 
And then the second hit, though, occurred somewhere in the environment, which which they don't know. Hmm. Um, possibly when I was in the Marine Corps, um, you know, I was exposed to a lot of uh, chemical, uh, you know, chemical munitions and training and uh, immunizations and vaccinations. There's a lot of things that you go through in the military that a civilian would not go through, and hmm. so that's one of my contentions is that I may have ex- been exposed to something that caused it to grow. And um, and so what? How did you? What did you do once you were diagnosed? How did you? Now you were able to. You stayed in the Marines for a while. Is that right? Yeah, actually, I was able to stay in the Marine Corps for about fifteen years. Um, as I said, you know, went into my uh, in eighty six. I've been in the Marine Corps for about three years at that time, mm-hmm. and uh, it. You know, I always joke joke uh, by saying it was my non shooting eye, which means that uh, you know when you shoot you typically close one eye anyway, and that happened to be the eye that I closed was in my left eye. So I could still fire a rifle fine, and I could still do everything any other Marine did. Uh-huh. And so I, I stayed in the Marine Corps and was very successful and had a great career for about 15 years. Hmm. When it moved into my brain and my kidneys, though, it started to um, you know, affect me pretty seriously at that point. So the Marine Corps went ahead and retired me at that point. And that's really what took me into this part of my life, a uh, new chapter in my life. Uh, you know, we're all going to be faced with obstacles. Just, let me just stop you for a second. When you, during those 15 years when you continued to work in the Marine Corps, were you still a drill instructor? Yeah. Actually, I, I drill instructor, taught water survival, um, taught at a leadership academy, and then also I was uh, my job in the Marine Corps was dealing with uh, ammunitions and explosives. So, yeah, I still did all that. I could do, you know, actually, Dr. Carroll, I, I probably – was a better Marine mm-hmm. as a result. Because sometimes when you're faced with adversity like that, when, when you make a decision, you know something, I'm going to be better than the next guy. And so they may not have known that I was always competing, you know, but uh-huh. in reality, I was always trying, you know, above and beyond because I was going to prove to everyone that I could still hack it. You know, I didn't tell anybody that I had this condition. My doctors knew, of oh, course. Oh, really? But, yeah, my doctors knew, but other than that, I never told anyone that I was blind in one eye or anything like that. Well, wait, but what, did they, did you, I mean, I know you, you wear a patch now. Did you not have to, how did people not know during those 15 years? Yeah, for about, till 1995, I just had that, that eye was a dead. You know, I was dead at that point. I couldn't see anything out of it. Um, but people couldn't tell that. Yeah, they probably just looked at me and thought I had a you know lazy eye or something. Uh-huh. Maybe. And in '95, mm. I had gotten cataracts in that that eye, and so it started hurting real bad. And so anyway, the, the doctors went ahead and just removed it and gave me a uh, prosthetic eye, a glass eye. But um, then you had the excuse that it was cataracts, and that wasn't anything serious. Right. And so other than other than my doctors knowing what was going on, no one else really knew. And if you saw me in performing as a Marine, you would never know. Hmm. Yeah, you never That's know. such an interesting phenomenon, <laughs> psychologically, what you're describing. Because as you said at the beginning, you know, it's it's like, I mean, well, certainly at least the stereotype, I don't know firsthand, but the stereotype of, of Marine drill instructors would be this, this guy that everybody hates because you make them do all these horrible things over and over again until they drop. Right. And, um, and, and they didn't know that you were underneath all of that, that you were waging your own war. That's right. I, I, I never, it, it's actually being a draw instructor was a good, <laughs> good stress relief in, in one, <laughs> one sense, you know, but, uh, no, they, they didn't know. And so when I would get up to do, you know, 
anything I had to do, like I was at an obstacle course where you have to walk across a log that's eight feet off the ground, I had to really, really concentrate on doing that. I mean, hmm. think about doing that with one eye closed. And so, yeah, I had to concentrate and, and like I said, in a funny sort of way, in a strange way, I think it made me better. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't wish this on anyone, including myself, but when I look at it, I really think in a way it made me better. It's made me go on and do things in my life that I probably never would have done if I was just living a comfortable existence and nothing had ever happened to me. <laughs> and, that's, and the music underlines that. Yes, that really, when, when you think about it, having to do all of those things and with this difficulty that, of course, you couldn't tell anyone about, it really is quite remarkable. But when we come back, we'll uh, hear some more remarkable stories from Jay Platt, my guest, the author of A Time to Walk. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a swing set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadylocks. I hope it has leaky windows, cried the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors cried the second. I hope it had the bathroom, cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org, and from energyhog.org she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy, and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org, or waste not, hog not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkgaard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time. Invoke thought, feeling, and inspiration into your life right here on voiceamerica.com. Expand love and light in the universe. Tune into Miracles Happen, Dreams Do Come True with Iris Jackson every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Each week, Iris and her guests empower, encourage, affirm, acknowledge, and remind us of who we really are, providing tools and processes to fulfill our destiny passionately, victoriously, and joyously. Miracles Happen, Dreams Do Come True is under the guidance and direction of our beloved I Am Presence, the seven mighty Elohim, the ascended masters, and the legions of light, and is given with fervent and heartfelt wishes that all of your dreams come true and are a thousand times more wonderful than you ever dreamed possible. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. 
And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about uh, the, uh, well, we're talking about the subject that my guest Jay Platt wrote about in his book, A Time to Walk. Um, we were talking about how he has been overcoming as a, originally as a Marine Corps drill instructor and discovering uh, his life-threatening illness. But before, let's, um, you know, as my listeners know, I always um, put everything on the couch, Dr. Carol's couch, and um, I'm always interested in what uh, drives someone before, what kind of childhood someone had before they got to do whatever it is that I'm talking to them about, you know, on the air. So what made you go into the Marine Corps in the first place I'm interested in because, you know, obviously there's a whole, especially as a drill instructor, there's a whole issue of control. You mentioned it at the beginning of the show. You know, you had an illness that was like a cancer that was sort of, it was, they were, it was growths that were growing out of control. So I'm wondering what, obviously control was a strong theme in your life even before you got this illness for you to go into the Marines, number one and to become a drill instructor, number two. So where did control uh, figure into your life as a child? Hmm, that's a, that's a great, great question. I, uh, I mean, you know, according to Freud, it starts in the anal phase. When you were around two, did you have any traumas in your life? that you Like, was there a brother or sister who was born when you were two years old? Oh, that, that's a great, actually, yes. <laughs> Do a little psychoanalysis here on me, but yeah, I've got a brother that's actually two and a half years younger than me. So uh-huh. maybe, maybe he is the cause of all this. <laughs> well, yes, what, and was he, uh, obviously, I mean, what happens, as you probably know, is that, uh, when there are children born after you are, particularly the child, the next child, that's a rival, um, for you, the love of your mother and father. Hmm. Yeah, and you know, I'm the third child, so my, I'm the middle child. My brother's the youngest, mm. and so uh, never really thought about all of that. <laughs> but um, yeah, it could could be. And you know, my my dad love him to death. Huh. He is he is a great man, but he's a definitely a very disciplined uh, type of person. And um, so I'm sure my uh, being a disciplined person myself came from that. My father was not a Marine, though. Um, actually, uh, what you know, his father, of course, was in World War II and uh, was actually in the Army during World War II, and, and as most in that generation were. Uh, for me, as far as wanting to be a Marine, I, I specifically remember when I was ten, I watched a movie called The Stand to Be Wajima with mm-hmm. John Wayne, and something about seeing that movie just triggered in me that, that that's what I wanted to do. And so as a 10-year-old kid, I was you know, running around telling people that I was going to be a Marine one day. Mm. And uh, so I had a very, uh, was very goal-oriented even as, as a kid and knew exactly what I wanted um, and actually ended up joining the Marine Corps when I was 17. Hmm. Were your father in, in any service? Was he in the military at all? No, he was, he was not. Was because of a medical problem, or no? Actually, they had um, during Vietnam. He had two kids at the time, so just didn't get drafted or whatever. And, hmm. uh, yeah. And was your family? Uh, did they want you to become a Marine at seventeen, or? Well, again, I hear for all these years I had been running around saying I was going to be a Marine. So yeah. their first thing, of course, was you're going to graduate. Um, uh huh. And. 
1983, um, the Beirut bombing, which really, you know, about September 11th, uh, 2001 was a horrible day, but, but terrorism actually started, you know, a long time before that. And our first taste of it was really in 1983, the Beirut bombing. There were 249 Marines, uh, who were killed. Hmm. And I was 17 at the time, still in high school. And so eight days after that bombing, I went and I, I enlisted. Um, Huh. Finished uh, and graduated from high school, and, and eight days after graduation, I was in boot camp at Paris Island, South Carolina. Well, that's <laughs> okay. That's interesting. Um, you know, it's it, it, that actually particularly fascinates me because um, one of the things that I talk about a lot is um, the influence that movies have on people. And you sort of, um, this is, you, you become another case example. <laughs> because people, you know, people, I mean, there can be good, well, actually, I was talking about that last week, come to think of that, uh, in regard to the Oscars, um, that people can be either positively influenced by movies, you know, to, to do something, um, follow some aspiration, um, or they can be, you know, negatively influenced um I mean, I actually didn't see that particular movie, The Sands of Iwo Jima, but, um, and I presume it has some violence in it, but it was historical or it was, there was a purpose to it, but a lot of the violence that we have, uh, in movies today, obviously, you know, are just there gratuitously and, and, uh, cause people, in my opinion, to become, well, not just my opinion, but there's research mm-hmm. to show that it causes people to become violent. So, so it is kind of, um, you know, this is, Another, I mean, your whole life, in a sense, was was conditioned, or was you were set on a certain path because, I mean, you were obviously bringing a, a certain psychological structure to seeing that movie, but then that caused you to follow a particular path. Um, so it, it is interesting. Well, why don't we talk about now what it is that you've learned from, you know, how you've turned uh, lemons into lemonade, how you dealt with. Um, your illness, particularly after it became um, worse, as you started to talk about in '98, when you had to leave the Marines. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the big change in me was about three years prior to me having to retire from the Marine Corps. 1995, um, ended up having my left eye removed, which was very traumatic um, because I always had sort of held out hope that one day technology would catch up and they would be able to do something to mm-hmm. repair this eye that I couldn't see out of. But I was given a choice that I could either go ahead and get out of the Marine Corps um, or I could stay in, but they'd have to remove the eye because I was to the point that I could not go outside anymore without wearing sunglasses. And um, so it was a hard decision, but I went in and told the doctors to go ahead and remove the eye. And, um, you know, I was terrified by that. And uh, you always hear these horror stories, for one thing, about someone going in to have the left leg amputated, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they removed the right one. So I was really terrified about that. And my attitude just got, you know, really bad. Um, had the eye removed, and they gave me a, a prosthetic eye, which didn't fit, what didn't match in color. If I would move my head too fast or laugh or sneeze, it would fall out. It was oh. horrible. And uh really bad attitude toward it all. And what changed me, though, was this. Um, people have been telling me, you know, you should read these books, read The Power of Positive Thinking and the different books like that. And I didn't want to hear any of it. And I was at a park one weekend, sitting there feeling sorry for myself, and I could hear something coming up behind me, and I couldn't tell what it was, and then eventually I could tell it was a laughter of a little girl. And I looked back, 
and there's this little girl in a wheelchair, and her, her mother is behind her pushing her in the wheelchair. And the little girl wasn't feeling sorry for herself like I was. She had the biggest smile on her face, and what she was saying was she was saying, Listen to the birds, Mama. Listen to the birds. And, you know, the old saying of when the student is ready, the master will appear. That little girl truly was a master for me because all the people have been telling me all for all this time, attitude is everything. You got to, you know, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with it. I had to see her really before it really snapped in my mind to to let really start sinking in, to, to realize that it's your choice. You can't choose what happens to you, but you can choose how you respond to it. That is true. And so after that, I really did start developing myself and and. What I found was this, though, even if you have a great attitude, in which I, I think I have a wonderful attitude now, but even if you have a great attitude, bad things will still happen. That's just, it's inevitable. It's just part of life. Bad things can still happen to you. But the thing about it, when you have a good attitude and your attitude's positive, you're able to overcome those much better than if you were at a negative type attitude. Because even though my attitude got better in 95, in 97, this condition worsened, moved into my brain, moved into my kidneys, and after having surgeries for that, uh, went ahead and I was retired in 1998. Now, at that point, I wanted to know, what am I going to do with my life at this point? Um, a doctor actually, just before I left the Marine Corps, a doctor gave me some paperwork where I could go down and get um, handicapped parking uh, stickers. And that really just aggravated me. <laughs> that must have been it like did. a red flag to a bull. Oh, gosh, it just... <laughs> It did. It just ate me up inside. I was, I was thinking, you know something? I'm going to show him and everyone else that I don't need a handicapped parking sticker. Um, I know some people do, but I did not. So I don't need that, and I'm going to show him I can walk not just across the parking lot. I'll walk a lot further than that. And so I decided that I was going to walk from uh, Maine to Georgia along the Appalachian Trail. It's 2,160 miles long, and at 98% of the people go from Georgia to Maine, but I decided I was going to go the other way, which at the time there had only been 300 people who had done that. Yes, and I was reading about that in your book. And what, but what was the, why did you decide to go the other way? Just because? Well, one, I thought it would be tougher. <laughs> and because of the time of the year that I decided to, I decided that I was going to do the hike in July. Um, and by the time I could get everything together to do it, it was August, and it was too. It would have been too late to try to start down south. So I was sort of forced into it in that sense. But I was also I was really curious about why there had been fewer than only you know only 300 people or so who had done it this way. Mm-hmm. It's just so tough. And so I wanted to you know I was looking for a challenge, and I decided to turn it into a, a fundraiser for cancer research as well. And? And so I contacted this Von Hippel-Lindau Family Alliance and uh, told them that I wanted to do a, like a walk-a-thon for them. And they were like, oh, well, that's, that's great. Um, you know, how much do you think you can raise? And I said, well, I'm thinking about, and my initial thought was, because I'd read this book on goal setting. It said you should always you know, set your goal high and then double that. And uh-huh. so I, the highest I could possibly think was $50,000. I even thought, I said, that's really unreal to even say. It's unrealistic to say it. But I thought it. So I started to say 50, I said 50000 Then I, I stopped it. And so I said, no, $10,000. And they're, oh, no, 10000 And then I said, ah, dang it. 
And I said, no, I meant to say $100,000. <laughs> so uh-huh. When I said that, whoever I was talking to on the, on the, on the phone, she, she dropped the phone. Like, what did you say? 100000 I said, yeah, 100000 And I said, it's a walk-a-thon, and people will donate. You know, I want to get people to donate so much per mile, and it's 2,160 miles. But eventually they did get behind it, and uh, they set up a website to follow me. Huh. And we ended up raising not $100,000. We ended up raising $109,000 <laughs> as a result of that hike, which wow. lets you know, I mean, really set, you, you know, set goals that you're willing to work for. You can't set something you're not willing to really right. work for, but set a goal that you're willing to push for. You can, there's amazing what you can do. Yes, and, you know, it's also interesting that um, – you should, as you were saying, you should set it really high because your mind kind of locks on to that number. I mean, look at how close you got to the number that you eventually said. You, maybe, I know. What if I would have said 200? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we come back, we'll uh, talk more with my guest, Jay Platt. I hope we're inspiring you today um, to walk the Appalachian Trail of your own life. And uh, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Bringing you around the world, right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Make Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race star. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Go beyond success and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, politics, science, spirituality, and culture, who have reached the pinnacle of financial and professional attainment in their fields, only to discover a profound lack of fulfillment with what our culture defines as success. So won't you tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time to Jeffrey Gitterman and Beyond Success, redefining the meaning of prosperity, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. This week on Slice of Sci-Fi with Michael and Evo, Lake Bell from Surface joins us to tell us about the show, and TD0013, our resident stormtrooper, joins us in studio to help us talk about the sci-fi that's happened this week. That's this week on Slice of Sci-Fi with Michael and Evo. Bringing you around the world, right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today with Jay Platt. He is the author of A Time to Walk, and um, you've been getting some inspiration for your soul, I hope. 
Now, um, Jay, tell us about you. Well, first of all, in the book, you, you use your actual um, hike on the Appalachian Trail to um, elucidate the ten lessons that, that you've learned and that you want to share with other people. So perhaps you could um, start start where you would like with telling us about that. I mean, I don't know if we're going to – we might be able to get all ten lessons in, but why don't you just start – Start along the trail. <laughs> okay. Well, let's start at the actually at the end of the trail of how this book came about. Okay. Because sometimes people may be hearing, you know, listening to this and saying, eh, I'm not really interested in hiking. I don't think this book would be okay. for me. But what I decided to do when I, you know, thought about writing this is I wanted it to be a book that really wasn't about hiking. I wanted to use the, the trail that I had hiked. I want to use that trail as a metaphor for life because I really believe that all of us are, are you know, hiking along our, our own trail. And, you know, you can't spend five-plus months out in, out in the woods on a trail like this and, and not discover some things about life, I, I believe. And I really saw that there is a, a big correlation between the things that happen on that trail and with what all of us go through in life. And so what I did was I simply I wrote you know ten chapters, um, it was a very quick reading book, and uh, ten chapters where I do um, use something things that actually happen to me on the trail and show you how you can actually apply this to your own uh, to your own life. Um, and the first chapter that I talk about is, is literally hiking the trail of life. As I said, I think we're all hiking on our our own trail and. Uh, you know, I didn't really know anything about the Appalachian Trail is a, is a thing about it. And so there's a, a tip there for everyone, though, <laughs> is that you don't have to have everything. Sometimes we want to have everything just perfect. Well, I've got to, you know, people would ask me when I was out on trail, you know, I guess you've been out here for a long time. You've probably done a lot of, you know, day hikes and section hikes, and you probably grew up in the mountains and all that. And I was like, no, I, don't, I didn't know anything about it. I, I read a little bit about it, and I did it. And so sometimes I think we hold ourselves back when we want everything to be just perfect first. And so mm-hmm. that is a good tip, I think, for all of us to remember. And so I got out there, and I had to learn a lot about uh, the trail as, as I went along. And one of the things I discovered is that, you know, on this trail, it's basically about a three-degree incline for the entire trail. That's what it averages out to be. Um, and I think all of us, when we're walking along in our in our life, we, we sort of are the same way. We're, we're really kind of walking on a plateau for the most part. It's kind of flat. Maybe we have some ups and some downs. But periodically, though, we have to go through a climbing stage is what I call it. The climbing stage is when we're going through tough times or maybe we're going through a uh, for a goal or, or, or what have you. It's tough, and it's, it, it takes effort. And you want to remember that if you're going through a tough time in your life right now, you're in that climbing stage, but the thing is this, is that eventually you'll get to the top. Um, for the most part, you know, we don't climb forever. We, we get to the top, and then it gets a little bit easier, and, and going downhill for the most part is, is easier. And don't do like I did, because what I did initially when I got on that trail is I would struggle to get to the top, and then I would almost run down. Mm-hmm. I would just... And, what I found was I wasn't enjoying the, the, the down, you know, when it's easier. And sometimes if you're so goal-oriented, and this is something I have to watch out myself because of you know, my personality, I guess, is that I'm so goal-oriented that I don't give myself a chance to, to really enjoy 
when I have accomplished something. And it's something we all want to remember. So if you're in a, the easy stage right now, enjoy that. Enjoy that. But keep in mind that there's probably going to be another mountain that you have to climb at some point. And that's, that's a really uh, valuable lesson that, yeah. that I learned out there. Yes, it does. Uh, when you think about it that way, when you picture it that way, it does make a lot of sense. Okay. Lesson two. Yeah, <laughs> Lesson the, whatever. Lesson two is, is a... <laughs> now, if you if you read lesson two, some people, you know, according to what you what you believe, uh, some people will find it find it hard to believe. But I, I call it it's the power of the mind, and I, the subtitle of that is, is ghost story. And so it's a real life ghost story. And uh, that one of the things I went out, I went out on the trail. Um, I didn't really, you know, I thought I was this big, bad, tough marine, and I didn't know that uh, you know, I really had all these fears that I that I have, and about a week before I went out on the trail, I, I did something dumb. I watched a documentary called When Bears Attack, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, not smart, because it was like watching Jaws just before you get to the beach, and all I could think about at that point was there going to be all these bears out there, and got out there, though, and, and in reality, I did not even see a bear. I, I saw a lot of places where they had scratched trees and things like that. So the biggest fear that I ended up facing would be at night when I was in my tent all by myself and I would hear something walking around. Now, now I, I know, you know, rationally I know there was just an animal of some sort, but not then. Then in my mind, and this kind of goes back to your point earlier, then in my mind it was Jason, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, all these horror movies that I had seen over the years just came flooding back to me, and I was just convinced that there was an axe murderer outside my tent. Now, where the ghost story comes in, though, is that one night I was staying in a shelter, and these shelters are like three-sided buildings, little lean-tos that are built all along the trail every 15 to 20 miles. And I was hiking with another hiker at the time named Grunt. Uh, my, my trail name is Patch, and we get to this shelter, and we're reading in this trail register where people write things down, these little, that's called a register. Um, people were talking about that there was a ghost of a little girl in the area, a little girl named Audie Smith who had went missing in that, that area in the late 1800s, never had found her, and that people had seen her, would see her periodically. And you know, I read that, and I was like, yeah, right. But that night I went to sleep, and about midnight I, I woke up. I had to use the bathroom, and so I went out, and it was real foggy. And I went out and I went behind a tree, and I came back, and then the wind started rustling and all. And I sat up, and I could hear someone saying, Come outside. You know, they're saying, Come outside. Come outside. <laughs> and I get up, and I, I could swear that I saw a little girl. And I walked out there too, and she ran off. Now, Grunt, who was with me, he said he saw the same thing. Now, looking back, was it really a ghost? I don't know. Or it's just what I talk about in the book, though, is that I don't know if it was a ghost or not. I do know, though, that what was put into my mind yes. by me reading that yes. convinced me that. And so that's why you have to be very careful. And this is exactly what you were saying earlier. Yes. You've got to be careful about what you're watching, what you're reading, what you're taking into your mind, because it really does stay there and it can really affect you. Yes. So that was ghost story, um, and okay. pr- probably one of the most 
the popular ones. I had some college, a couple colleges that use this book, and those college kids seem to like that one. Mm-hmm. Yes, but no, it does make the point, and and um, and also I, I, the point that if you let your fears overpower you, I mean, I guess there could be some people who would have turned back from um, their hike after hearing that story, or perhaps even after seeing the ghost or thinking that they did. Yeah, that's that's a great point too, and and you know, overcoming your fear is something that we all, you know, no matter what it is, you know, you, maybe you're not going to be going out on a trail like this and maybe you're not going to be doing something uh you know even similar to this but you're going to have to deal with fear in, in some way and i think the, the key with with dealing with fear because you're so right it's sad to me how many people allow their fears to to really hold them back and i'm not someone who i don't buy into the philosophy of you know there's you know roosevelt's famous statement of there's no such thing as fear itself because there are some legitimate fears uh, there are some fears that you really have to, to to watch out for, and and there are ways around that. Um, you know, the fear has been built into us for a specific reason. Um, it's, it's a protector, if you will. Um, but you have to determine if it's legitimate or not. And so, uh, if it's not legitimate, I, I believe the best way is to to face that fear. You know, you, Emerson said that. You know, it's the surest death of fear is to face it. And uh, so, I, I hope people by by reading. You know, my example, they're able to, to follow the, the same thing in their life because I've certainly had to deal with a lot of fear in my life, not just on the trail, but also with going through a lot of the different surgeries I've had, et, et cetera. Yes, and I guess, you know, being out there for five months, um, one of the fears would have been that what if, what if you got sick? I mean, this is something that's obviously an incredible challenge just for somebody who's healthy. And what if you would have gotten sick and, and needed some kind of medical attention? Did that fear go through your mind? Yeah, and yes, it did. And, you know, looking back, I, uh, I've told, you know, I've told people, you know, if anybody that I care about, I would not allow them, you know, I, I would try to, to talk them out of going out and doing this by themselves. Um, it's not a smart thing to do. I, I did it by myself and it's not smart because there are a lot of, times where you are definitely in danger um i mean you are there are times that you're going along a ledge that is you know two thousand feet up um and one thought step and you would you would you would fall you'd be dead um and i was doing this with one eye and a brain tumor mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you know looking back definitely and um there were some times that uh i Altitude sickness sort of set in too. Me being in those mountains and me mm-hmm. still having a tumor in my on my cerebellum mm-hmm. caused me to to kind of pass out a couple of times. Well, and, so, and I get, and also the, that would have caused you to have problems with your balance. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so already, you know, like I said, with having one eye and the tumor anyway, and then being at, at high altitude, my balance, and so all of that was right. wasn't a very healthy and very smart <laughs> thing to do. Well, you know, I can't help. I have to. <laughs> I have to say here as a shrink um, that I guess at least an unconscious, I mean, I know you said that part of your motivation came from this this uh, not not wanting to be faced with the disability sticker and all of that, but also it would have been to to prove to yourself that you could cheat death in a way that you're not gonna that it's not gonna get you. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, validity to that statement. And when we come back, we'll hear more um, from my guest. His name is Jay Platt. We're talking about his uh, trip 
up the Appalachian Trail, but really a trip that caused him to reflect upon things that are helpful for anyone, not just hikers. So stay tuned as we uh, hear more about his story. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Unlimited talk at your fingertips, voiceamerica.com. West Coast Business Review and host Amy Campbell presents Show Me the Business. Each week, you'll hear exciting guests give you vital information on advancing your business and career. Learn how others have built their empires, from best-selling authors to renowned entertainers. Listen every Tuesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific time on voiceamericaradio.com. Visit our website at www.westcoastbusinessreview.com. West Coast Business Reviews, show me the business, connecting you to the business world. World-renowned cosmetic surgeon and scientist, Dr. Andrew G. Berman, hosts Beauty in America, broadcasting every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America channel. What is beauty? How is it viewed in a cross-cultural context? And what is the role of plastic surgery in society, careers, and life? Expert guests join Dr. Berman to discuss historic and current concepts of beauty and plastic surgery, as well as trends, advances, and gimmicks. Beauty in America with Dr. Andrew G. Berman finds out what is real and what is hype right here on the Voice America channel, Fridays at 2 p.m. The results indicate your child has neuroblastoma. There's evidence of metastasis. We need to schedule a bone We need to perform a surgery. After you hear your child has cancer, chances are you don't hear anything else. CureSearch.org connects you to the most comprehensive research and advice on childhood cancer and to other families who know exactly what you're going through. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show... Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today with Jay Platt, and he's uh, giving us a little bird's-eye view of um, some of the lessons that he learned when he hiked the Appalachian Trail. Um, I guess for those of you who have tuned in late, this is with a life-threatening disease, um, after having been diagnosed and dealing with that and um, really uh, finding a way to not only help others by raising money through this hike, which I'm sure gave you some um, motivation, too, to continue, but um, but just actually proving to himself that he would be able to do it and not sort of feeling that he's a victim and, and sitting in his... <laughs> Sitting at home and, and going, woe is me. Um, Jay, did, were there ever any times that you thought that you came close to turning back? Ooh, that's such a good question. There's a couple of them. One is actually within the first day. You know, I, I got up there and I was a big, bad, tough Marine and I was going to do this thing and the first day, what I have to do up north, starting in Maine, is you have to go to the top of this mountain, Mount Katahdin, 
Um, and so you have to hike to the top of the mountain, which takes about took me about four hours to get up there. And by the time I got up there, although I had done a lot of preparation and I had, you know, I had hiked and, and carried a pack and, and things for years in the Marine Corps, but something about my foot being at that angle um, on that granite rock caused me to have two huge blisters, a blister on each hill. And I had nothing to put, be able to put on there. And so I was, when I, by the time I came back down, it took me four hours to get up there and a good four hours to get back down. By the time I got back down, my feet were just a bloody mess and I was in tears. I mean, I was, I was so painful and I was thinking, people have already, you know, donated money and expect, you know, I've told everybody I was going to do this and, um, Yes, I sort of wanted to wanted to quit, but this is a I think this is so key because people ask me a lot of times, well, how you know, it's just, how are you able to do a lot of things you're able to do? I think that something that's very important is if you have a big enough reason to do something, uh, then you'll do whatever it takes. And so, in other words, if, you have a, if your why is big enough, you'll, it doesn't matter what you have to do. And so, when I thought about quitting. I realized that if I quit, it wasn't just quitting on me. I was going to be quitting not only on all the people who had already donated, but also on all these other people who have cancer and, and, and Von Hippel Lindau, these conditions that were watching to see, could I really do this? Yes. And, and that if really you didn't do going. it, then it would make them feel that they couldn't right, exactly. climb their hills, even if it's not exactly. a literal mountain. And yeah. the, second, the second time that really comes to mind that I, I thought about quitting, though, was uh, three months into the hike, I actually I got married. <laughs> so, my, my, my fiance, she drove up and met me in Massachusetts. We drove across the state line to New York, got married. Took, I took three days off the trail for our little quote unquote honeymoon. And uh, that was nice of you. <laughs> yeah, and then then she drove back to North Carolina, and you know I kept hiking, and that was tough. That was really tough. For me to be thinking, mm-hmm. I could be with my wife, you know, with my new wife right now. And here I'm out, you know, hiking. <laughs> so that was kind of tough too. Huh. Well, now why don't you? I do want to get to um, uh, the re- most recent uh, feat that you're talking about, feat that you uh, that you've accomplished: the uh, swimming to from Alcatraz Island. Yes. Um, I think it's really important to have goals. I think goals are so important. But once you've accomplished something, you can't rest on your laurels. Yeah, you can uh, be glad that you did that and, and learn something from it. But it, to me, it's important to push on. And I, there's a motivational speaker named Les Brown, um, and he's one of my favorites. And Les Brown, he's, he's got a, a saying that I love. He says that used to bees don't make no honey. <laughs> And so, really, what I say, you can't rest on your laurels. You got to keep doing. And so, I decided, you know, I, I continued to try to push myself. And so, my most recent thing was, I swam from Alcatraz Island uh, to San Francisco with my hands and feet tied. Um, something at the time, uh, only two other people had ever done that: Jack Lalane, you know, the famous fitness guru, um, and a guy named Alberto Cristini, who's uh, an Italian who came over and, and did the swim. Um, and so they were the only ones who had ever done it, and I decided I was going to do it. Uh, I tied this in also to a fundraiser. I decided this time to do it for the Injured Marine Simplify Fund, which was mm. for Marines who had lost limbs in combat. And uh, 
trained for it. In November of last year, I went out to San Francisco. It took me an hour and 55 minutes to do it, 1.66 miles, but I was successful in the end. Now, what do you think psychologically? I mean, what made you feel that you wanted to do another? Had anything... Um, I mean, how are you doing? I guess I should ask that. How how are you doing physically? How how have the what is your current um, situation? Are you? I mean, I guess there's no way to know that you've actually conquered it. But uh. yeah, I actually I get because the condition I have is so rare. Um, I'm actually part of the uh, kidney protocol at the National Cancer Institute up at the National Institutes of Health in D.C. Um, and so I'm seen there on a yearly basis and. Uh, I have been very blessed that nothing has grown. Uh, I still have tumors that are, are sort of holding in place, but nothing has grown in more than five years now. Um, they're just sort of there. With this particular condition, they wait till a tumor will get to a certain size before they try to do anything with it. Um, and so I'm actually feeling great. Um, I, I, I exercise a lot, probably too much. It's a big part of my regimen. Um, most of my the, the uh, adventures that I do are physically related in some way. The thing that wanted, made me want to do this swim was I had taught water survival in the Marine Corps. One of the things that we do in, in water survival as water survival instructors is we will swim with our hands and feet tied to show people who can't swim that if you'll just relax and you'll follow the, the techniques that we're showing you that you could survive even if someone tied you up and, and threw you in the water. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess fish don't have feet or hands, so. Yeah, and Jack Lane actually said that when he first did the swim, uh, he said he swam like a dolphin. He said dolphins don't have hands and feet, and that's exactly how I did the swim. And if you go to my website, uh, escapefromalcatraz.com, I've got a video of my swim there. Um, and I, what I did was I did a dolphin kick like you would do uh, for a butterfly stroke. Uh-huh. And I'd set my arms out in front of me, and I would pull my uh, hands in toward my chest in order to breathe, uh, to ra- help me raise my head. Mm. And um, like I said, I, I took me about an hour and fifty-five minutes to do it, but uh, just slow and easy all the way across the bay. And what you spend most of your time doing now, besides writing, is lecturing to people. Yeah, I, I travel all over the country. Um, talking to different organizations and associations and, and also colleges as well, um, talking to them about the same things that we've been talking about here today, about this no matter what mindset, um, that, that you can, in fact, overcome no matter what the obstacle is. And the same methods that I've learned to overcome adversity, i found, are, can also be used to make you successful. Well, it's certainly you certainly are living proof of it, and... Um... I appreciate you sharing your story. It's, it's an amazing story because, um, I, I, well, first of all, why don't you give out, um, you, you said escapefromalcatraz.com to see about your swim, mm-hmm. but then also give out your website and the VHL website because I think, um, since it is rare, I think a lot of people really don't know um, much about this disorder. And um, I think, you know, what you said at the very beginning, the idea that it's such a, it's a disorder that's so um, uncontrollable. I mean, you never know when it's going to pop up and, and do what to your body. Um, it's like cancer a uh, hundred times over. Usually somebody, if they have cancer, I mean, certainly that's no picnic, but um, it's in a, it starts out at least if you get it early. And, of course, that's mm. that's kind of the key, too. But um, 
they're worried about one part of their body, body at least at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And um, with this, it, it can attack so many different parts of your body. So I just wanted, wanted to sort of reiterate that yeah. so that people realize just what a... Um, you know what it means to to do the feats that you've been doing to try to um, prove that that it's not going to hold you back. So why don't you give people your website? Let's start with yeah. that. My website is jplatt.com, j a y p l a t t dot com, and to get information about BHL Bonnie Palindale is is bhlfa dot o r g, bhlfa dot org. And again, uh, Jay Platt. Website, very easy to remember, jplatt.com, J-A-Y-P-L-A-T-T.com. And the book is called A Time to Walk, and we've uh, really only t- touched on the first few steps. So there's still a lot, a lot to learn from, uh, from reading this. And it's not about hiking per se, literally, although that's, that part's interesting for someone who hasn't done it. But it's about hiking through life and, and doing it in a way where you pull out the best in you. Maybe you don't want to hike the Appalachian Trail or swim from Alcatraz, but there are certainly goals that you should be setting in your own life. And um, if someone can overcome uh, the kinds of obstacles that my guest has done, uh, certainly we can all try to overcome our own obstacles and go beyond. And again, to uh, tie it up with what I was saying at the beginning, it's not just a matter of Jay Platt <clears throat> hiking and earning money for people, but it's um, to help in in research. But it's also about sharing his story with the rest of the world and, and being a um, an inspiration to all of us to walk our mountains and climb to the top of our mountains and swim our oceans and do whatever it is that uh, we want to do for ourselves and for the rest of the world. So thank you very much for joining us. And I wish you all success, and I hope a lot of people get your message. And um, we'll have to look out for your next feat, <laughs> what it is that you're going to do. Thanks a lot. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman on voiceamerica.com. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.